The talk today is looking at how technology has become ubiquitous and ever-present in our society, and in particular, how it's affecting our kids, our, our young people. Technology is so a part of our daily lives that, you know, sometimes we, we cope, we forget it's there. It's, but it's also when it becomes a problem that we really notice it. And sometimes it's a problem when it's not there and how do we engage. So we're looking at how technology blends and blurs that order around how we engage and how totally different it is from when we grew up. I mean, I think about when I was growing up and how the internet wasn't really a thing. It was a little bit of a, you know, a thing that I used to go on, you know, download um, jokes. I don't know if anyone else did that. You know, there was home pages and I just used to download reams and reams of jokes. And then I'd also get in trouble because I'd been on too long and someone was trying to make a phone call. So that was my experience of the internet. I know. I think all of us would have think back to our upbringing and think about how different it is for our young people today. I mean, I think the whole thing now is that the internet's not just something you get to in the office or in the computer laboratory. It's actually something we carry around in our pockets with us. And I think that's really one of the things we want to think about when we're looking at always connected and plugged in. To help us structure this today's talk is that we've actually got some scenarios that we've created and we're going to read out. And these scenarios are fictitious, they're not real, uh, but they are based on data. So data and research of the research that we've done as well as other people have done. But it's also informed through our experiences. We are parents ourselves, but we're also educators. And so the, these scenarios sort of represent what we see, um, especially since those experiences of our young people are just so different from ourselves. So we've got two scenarios we'll read and then we'll unpack as we go through today's talk. Great, so you go first. first. Okay. So we've got Jack, age 10, and Will, aged 11, who are brothers. They've grown up with digital devices, and their access and engagement with these devices have grown over the years. Jack is an avid Minecraft fan. His love for the game has infiltrated his online life as well as his offline life. It sparks friendships in the playground. It's also used for creative play while engaging with other people offline. Will also loves Minecraft, however his interests have also stretched to other games now. So Roblox and Fortnite are all current and things that he engages with and connects with other people on. So in the family, they've increased a number of arguments around technology use and how much time they spend on the devices. Um, during lockdown, they really did spend a lot of time on devices and because it was a lifeline, it was a way to connect through their, uh, to their peers, but also their education and their learning. Um, but since COVID, it has continued to, to be as much as it is. So their parents have noticed that the kids are getting more angry and a little bit of attitude when you get them to tell them to get off their devices. So the boys are starting to struggle with this and especially around parents' inconsistency around those expectations. The parents are grappling themselves around setting time limits, and especially when the devices need to be now used for their educational purposes as well. Mm. So scenario one. And my scenario is looking at Ariana and Tom, 15-year-old, 19-year-old siblings. Um, Ariana's second child in a big family. 
Her bedroom is her sanctuary from the mayhem of her family life. Um, and her phone is her lifeline and her private space. It's never far from her side. It connects her with her friends, the music she likes, the fashion she likes to look at. Um, her bestie introduced her to a boy in the neighboring school and she's got a crush on him and she's always angsting about, does she check his profile? Does she like it? What does she comment on? She and her friends will often lie in bed at night and Snapchat to each other, like to be the last one to have the last word. Um, you know, mom got really cross with her last year and took the cell phone away for a couple of days. And she was mortified. It was, she felt lost, lonely, and disconnected. Her older brother's moved out of home. He's 18 years old at university, um, non-binary. Uh, not him, they, them. And so as a university student, spends a huge amount of time online, although actually after COVID is kind of enjoying going back to face-to-face. Uh, navigating the tricky world of assessment, you know, online assessment, how, you know, what he can use, what he can't use, passionate about LGBTQ rights and has really seen some of the nasty sides of how people behave online. They've got spaces that are private that they and their friends um, can interact in and then a lot of anonymous accounts because it's the way you can interact safely. Their parents really worry about them because they never see them and it seems quite isolating and... Uh, they know they're in the really high-risk group for mental health issues. Mm. All right. So those are just not two scenarios, and we'll start to unpack them a little bit more. So there are themes that you might have noticed throughout those two scenarios, and so we're going to talk about them individually, but one of the first ones that we saw in terms of a wicked question is screen time. You know, what's too much? What's too too little? Is there such a thing? I don't know. (laughs) So... Um, does anyone know what the Ministry of Health's guideline in terms of the amount of time of recreational screen time that they allow for young people? There, there is a number. How many hours a day? How many hours? Anyone want to guess? No. Two. Oh, Thank you. Sweet. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeding them answers, I think. <laughs> yes. Two. Okay, so it's two hours per day of recreational screen time recommended for young people. What age? Ah, okay. So um, we'll unpack that a little bit more. But actually, uh, five years and upwards. So for young people, so young people would be up to, um, I think we had the stats was 17, wasn't mm. it? That's so, how we define And youth. that's recreational. And I'll unpack that one as well. Paul. Mm. Cool. Yeah, I'm not half that good. I know how to check the settings in my cell phone about how much time I spend. And I can sometimes, weekends, spend two hours a day just on my cell phone. And I make, it's because it's my, it's what I do. It's my photos. It's how I chat to my family, you know, that aren't here. It's the weather. It's next to my bed. It's my alarm clock. You know, it's really, it's, I use it for everything. Mm. And, um, yeah. Yeah. and, um, I once interviewed a student and asked her about her mobile device use, and she said, it's the new lipstick. You can't go anywhere without it in your handbag. Well, I don't wear with lipstick, so. <laughs> but I got my phone. But it's the same for the kids, you know, and young people. They have the devices on them all the time if they have devices, but even if they don't have devices, they want to get on the devices. And the, the usage is not just games, it's not just recreation, as you saw, it, you know, it's for educational purposes. So there are some really interesting ways that technology is used and the learnings that they get are quite interesting. So, you know, I mentioned Minecraft as one example. And Minecraft is a, it's a non, 
um, goal-orientated game. So it's a virtual world kids can go into and just play and create. And from that, I've seen some amazing things that, for my kids, they're doing. Also with Minecraft, there's actually an add-on that's off-link off from Minecraft called Minecraft Edu, which is actually used in schools nowadays to actually learn with. So kids are using Minecraft Edu to um, code, learn science, maths. Um, I engage with some schools and I've used it to teach coding to um, eight-year-olds. Um, I've also seen in high school. So I've seen, um, I've worked with a Japanese teacher that used um, Minecraft to create a virtual uh, Japanese village. And this was during COVID. So they couldn't actually go to Japan to have their OE experience. And so what they did was they created a virtual Japanese village. And so the kids can go in, well, high school students, could go in and practice their pronunciations, but also learn a little bit about the, the customs that they would have seen if they'd gone. So, I mean, I don't know about you, but I mean, I also think about the games my kids play, and it's certainly not a static environment. They're jumping up and shouting and, you know, engaging. So technology is so different depending on what they're doing. I mean, I've got the sounds of mayhem of gameplay in my house as well. Um, I mean, I was listening to a teacher talking about how they were using the analogy of Fortnite, which is a shooter game, to talk about physics and projectile motion because you've got a parachute out of a flying you know, helicopter type thing. I mean, I've only watched it and jumped down into the appropriate spot. So things can be educational, but they can be isolating as well. I mean, um, you know, when a young person's sitting in front of a computer with their headphones on, as an adult, you walk past and you think, well, what are they doing? Um, I mean, we've had a few incidents in our households where I've said, but I said, it's supper time already. You need to come now. <sighs> Teenager, you know, quits, leaves, sits down at the dinner table. Once things are thought out, says, well, now we've just lost the game. I've let my whole team down. You know, next time we get, we get started, we've got a 10-minute penalty because, you know, I had to quit mid-game. So it shows us as parents that you make assumptions about the activities that young people are doing on the screen and the validity of it in terms of, um, of what it is and that we need, to, you know, we need to be aware that you know, what looks like an individual isolated thing is not necessarily, um, necessarily frivolous. Mm, true. Okay, so let's go back to that two-hour thing that I was talking about. So it's also developed by the Ministry of Health and actually those two hours are actually defined by active. So in other words, the two hours are the maximum amount of time a child should be not active. So they're classing screen time as not active, but and then the rest of it is active. So going out, doing stuff, being engaged with other people, etc. So um, hopefully you're starting to see, you know, some of the issues around this two hour and how vague it is in terms of engaging and being online and just from the examples that we've already seen, you know, what it is screen time as a recreational aspect. And sometimes these recommendations just make me feel guilty as a parent and adult. I mean, I don't know how I'd ever have got through toddlerhood if it wasn't for Teletubbies and the Wiggles. Okay, that dates me too. But I mean, and then I wonder whether anyone in the Ministry of Health ever had kids under five because... <laughs> <laughs> it seems a bit unrealistic, but I mean, if we're, if we're looking at what the potential harm could be, there was a study out of University of Auckland 
in the last couple of years that looked at a meta-analysis of how digital technology is influencing young people's social, emotional, and cognitive development. And whilst they did find some indications of negative um, impact and harm, it wasn't necessarily related to the technology. It was related to a whole lot of other factors. So yes, if young people are spending, and kids under five are spending excessive amount of time on devices, it can cause problems, but it usually also had to do with a whole lot of other complicated factors. A lot of them socioeconomic, things about busy families, sleep. You know, in the scenario we had, Ariana and Tom were up late at night with cell phones in their bedroom. Not the cell phones' fault. The cell phones meaning that they're just not putting them down and going to sleep when they need to. So mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a really quite a complex thing. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's a lot of confounding and not necessarily it's a symptom of sometimes. And so what was actually really interesting about that study, so they've looked at lots of studies um, that people did um, here and overseas, because it was a, a, from the University of Auckland. And from this analysis, they looked, they found two things. So that if the engagement on the device was non-educational and passive, that's where it was more likely that you had those harmful effects. So what they were trying to say, or what they, they came up with, is that this idea of the two hours needs to be nuanced. It had to be a little bit in terms of, you know, what is the impact of those two hours? If it is just sitting there, you know, doing nothing, like my kids, watching people play games on YouTube, not so interesting, not so good, okay? But if they are actually there on Minecraft playing themselves, then it becomes okay. Okay, and interesting to see, or at least so when I say okay, less fraught in terms of those those harm issues that they saw. Although the kids often get lots of ideas from watching other people do things, and we mustn't forget that even as adults, we use screen time as our downtime. Everyone needs to veg out sometimes, and it's been a space for my kids when life's been stressful that they can just sit quietly um, with their devices. Mm. But I think one of the other things is it shows that young people, we really do need to help them develop, um, figure out what the balance is for them in terms of their own digital well-being. So we do need to set boundaries and parameters and help them regulate their behavior. If I think back to um, the days when we lived in South Africa, um, data really wasn't quite so prevalent. Uh, we had to restrict our kids at one stage to one hour of YouTube a day, which was one gig of data. And if they went over, we ran out of data before the end of the month and we couldn't get our work done. So <laughs> let's just say this was a very, this was a very controversial issue and cheating did happen sometimes, um, which we would discover in retrospect. But um, whilst it wasn't easy at the time, when they talk back at it, they say, well, taught me how to figure, you know, I looked forward to that time. I figured out what I really wanted to watch. Um, I prioritized things. And so it did actually teach them the regulation, I think, somehow that they needed, even though it was circumstantial. So, mm. yeah. And I think it's also um, important to recognize that there might be positive, unintended consequences from using devices. Um, there was a study in the UK during COVID, and what it looked at was looking at, at kids reading um, at amounts of time that they're reading, but also their uh, enjoyment or their purpose to read. And so one of the things that came out during COVID, I don't know if you're aware, is that there were a lot of podcasts that people were doing. And in particular, a lot of um, authors that were reading their books that kids could then listen to. And they actually found this was triggering kids' interest in reading. 
and especially for boys. They're listening to these podcasts and realizing just how much of a world there was out there that they could actually engage in and read. So, you know, these things that are, you know, digital actually have leached into <laughs> our offline spaces. And even for my kids, you know, with their Minecraft craze, you know, they would look for books on Minecraft, read about it. They would, you know, you were talking about looking up hints. There was books that told them how to use it more creatively and the things you could that you could create. And amazing the things that they learned from it. They knew what, you know, a biome was. I'm not so sure about what it is. But they also know how glass is made through these things. Yeah, we haven't had such a success in our household, but we went through a phase of anime, for example, back-to-back -back watching of things. And as a result of that, um, one of my children said, well, that's, I want to study Japanese in high school. I um, want to play the sport the kids in the anime I watch play. Um, I think what it shows is that online um, information they get or what they're watching online can spill through into real life. And so it's a real complex entanglement. The boundaries are blurred. Mm. It's not really online or offline. Um, yeah. But, I mean, digital technology also really connects us. We learned that during COVID as adults, didn't we? I mean, we learned we did a whole lot of things that we'd never done before. We played quizzes online. We never would even do quizzes, but we discovered an online quiz once a week that we always to play as a family. I, I think we also did a quiz together. So, I mean, the things that you probably wouldn't do during COVID, but we won't go there. So, I think uh, it is interesting how it does spill into, you know, this offline, online, and these influences on that. And, you know, kids talking about games and, and uh, sparking interest in the playground. There is things that are coming out of being online and using devices. And um, I think we've got a term for this, it's, you know, post-digital. And do you want to explain what that means? I think it just means the post you often think of as after, but in, you know, academic speak, it sometimes means the world with. So we think that we're not living, we're living in a world where digital just is. We can't avoid it. We can, it's harder to separate when we're offline, when we're online, when we're virtual, when we're face-to-face. -face. The boundaries are blurring and we move in and out of them all the time. And if we as adults are doing that, our young people are doing it even more. Yeah. I mean, when I look at my kids and they all want to be YouTube stars. Um, anyone <laughs> have that at home? Yep. So they, mine are really keen on creating little videos and um, a lot of it's, luckily, it's not the little podcasts talking um, aimlessly. They're actually staging these elaborate movies and they've got, you know, someone does the directing, someone does the, the editing afterwards, some, most of them do the acting and, you know, it's quite elaborate. And what's happening is that the, the devices are enabling that creative play. So they wouldn't have been able to do it if they didn't have the device. Though sometimes I sickly think they'd say that just to get their hands on the devices because I'm sitting there going, is it with a device? No, you can't. Oh, but we're creating a video. I was like, oh, okay. It's quite sweet, though. Doesn't everybody <laughs> want to be an influencer and a YouTube star now? Anyway, okay, let's move on. Let's think. We've talked a bit about screen time and youth. Um, so let's just think about what some of these implications are for young people. So you were talking about endless YouTube videos that kids watch. You know, the same could probably be sent to social media, Facebook, TikTok. Mm. There's a word for it, though, isn't it, when you're just sitting and looking at stuff flowing across the screen? Yeah, that endless scrolling that you do. You know, you're not really engaging, but you're just going and going. And, it, and luckily, and the thing with um, Facebook, it never ends. You just sit there and, 
And by the time you actually open something up, you go back into it, it's refreshed and you start at the beginning again. It's very magical, isn't it? <laughs> so um, the, what's the term for this is doom scrolling. But in fact, doom scrolling was coined in terms of this endless scrolling to consume negative information. So some of you might be you know, reflecting during COVID and the lockdown and how we just consume this negative information that was fed to us. And, and um, in fact, there's a study in the US and it talks about how this doom scrolling can actually impact our well-being, our physical well-being and as well as our mental well-being. And so it's, it's you know, some people I know have actually disconnected from social media because of these implications and they're finding it's becoming that addiction of just going on to there and scrolling and scrolling. Mm. And I think, you know, if as adults we think social media is false, it's no wonder we worry about it with our young people and how much time they spend online. I mean, I think we've, in Aotearoa, we've really seen the impact of social media on some of our particularly female, high-flying, you know, politicians, PM, um, people during COVID, female academics who were talking about things in social media, there really are the, um, you know, there's a lot of vitriol out there. And so it's no wonder we're worried about it. And, you know, think about things, mega millionaires taking control of our, you know, a single social media app. We begin to wonder how much we're being controlled by things versus mm. how much control we actually have. Yep, true. I mean, I don't know if anyone in the audience have some examples of, you know, <laughs> some really toxic stuff they've seen. Anyone want to share? Or else I'll give you mine. Go for it. <laughs> All right. So um, I belong to an auto association for caravanning, and they've got a few Facebook uh, groups around, and so hopefully no one's in the room that belongs to them. Um, but I have, <laughs> I have seen the comments that are happening on this uh, forum of just how negative and toxic some people's comments are. And it's very surprising, you know, the things that people will say on these things. And you think, would you say this face-to-face -face with someone? And you look at the profiles of who's actually saying this, and it's not the young people. They wouldn't be on this <laughs> Facebook group anyway. But it is the older generation. And I think we as parents and grandparents and godparents and caregivers need to take some sort of accountability on how we engage and so it might be how we doom scrolling and sitting with our devices in front of the TV and trying to engage with other people and talking to them or at the dinner table and you've got your device next to you, but also what we're putting on those devices and the comments we're making and taking responsibility for that. I think that's a good point. Um, I don't know if you remember last year in the media, the, um, there was a whole blow up around a guy called Andrew Tate, um, who teachers were calling the sort of new pandemic for his absolute misogynistic vitriol. Uh, when I was reading up about it, uh, I suddenly panicked as a parent and went to my teenager and said, oh my God, you don't watch Andrew Tate, do you? He's like, well, how can I avoid it? You know, I'm a teenage boy. You know, the algorithms just flick it. I can't avoid it. I watch TikTok. Andrew Tate comes across every single time. It doesn't mean he's a nice person. I don't watch him because he's nice. He's got some rather cool cars. So it reminds me that our young people actually are quite critical and able to be critical of what they're engaging with and what they're thinking about. And just because it's there in their feet doesn't mean that they're, they're not thinking about the implications of it. Yeah, but it is interesting is that these, I, these, this content gets pushed to them and, you know, how do they escape? And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But my kids aren't on social media, so, you know, they're a little bit younger. 
but they do have messenger apps that they can talk to other people on. So one of the things that they do is um, Facebook Messenger. But the thing with Facebook Messenger for kids, okay, is that I can control things. I can say who's going to be connecting with them. And I also get to see the images that go through that, that, um, that they send to each other. And in fact, um, last year they went on a, a party, sleepover party, and I was just looking at the, the photos that were coming through and there were some, you know, slightly risque photos of obviously them getting all excited and they were in their pyjamas and then they weren't in their pyjamas and, you know, so very blurry. <laughs> and they were sharing it between them and I, you know, I used this as an opportunity to talk to them and say, look, actually, well, my son in particular, is that, you know, this is not appropriate. What are the implications of you sharing these sort of photos? And so it was a, stop, a starting point that I could have those conversations through having those controls. Because my other kids, as he's getting older and, and moving to games, you don't always have those sort of controls on those things. So my, my child uses um, Roblox. And though I have some controls on you know, who they can talk to and can they talk to, um, it's becoming a little bit harder to control. And what, but what's good about it is that I normally hear him engaging. He's, he's not a great typer, so he uses voice to text. And so he talks these little comments, and I can sort of hear what he's saying. And, and I'll use this as an opportunity to dive in when I hear something and use it as a, a tough time to say, you know, what are you doing? Can you show me this? And you can see what's going on. So I think a lot of it's about just being aware. I think as the kids get older, though, and I'm thinking of Ariana and Tom's scenario, um, it moves from what you can see, the play dates, the sleepovers, into sitting on your own in the bedroom at night and you have no idea what they're engaging with. Um, I mean, well, there's, a, there's research out of the US that says that young people find it much easier to connect socially and talk about their challenges and their problems mm -hmm. with friends online through virtual means. They're better at the virtual sharing and caring stuff than they are often face-to-face. -face. But there's some real, real problems. And NetSafe's research recently shown that... Um, 25% of teenage girls in Aotearoa had been asked for nudes in the last month. So we do know that this is a risky area and it's one that is concerning. I mean, I have a niece who's had a stalker online and I think one of the things that, it, you know, it's not, it's not a stranger, it's someone, you know, she knows. And the thing is they can't escape it. I think the difference is not that the technology is causing the problem, but because of the technology, you can't escape the problem. It's just not, it's not like a crap friend at school and you can come home. Mm. It sits with you in your cell phone all the time. Yeah. And it is worrying, you know, when you've got those things that you can't necessarily control and it's happening and it's, it's getting them, you know, it's attacking them when they're at home, when they're away from school. And I think, um, you know, there is... There is an element of, you know, how do we control that as parents? How do we engage with that? And um, I think the, the tricky thing is how to balance that out. And I, I think also looking at, once again, modeling our behavior, but also unpacking what's actually inside these things that are allowing things. So, for example, I don't know if anyone was in the, the Foursquare era. So <laughs> Checking in. Checking in. Checking in. So a location. Can you imagine? Of this information that was public, that you you went to a location, you checked in, and people know where you are. Um, my husband does running, and there's a app that uh, maps his runs, and this information is shared 
publicly. So because he starts running from his house, you know, they know where he lives. So it's actually, you know, once you scratch the surface with some of these tools, you start to get a little bit aware of what's happening. And so we as parents will be able to see this and guide them, but it's also trying to work through this with kids and saying, okay, this is how you keep yourself safe. This is why I don't want you to share your location. Hmm. And I mean, some of the tools kids are engaging with, like you mentioned, Roblox, mm -hmm. they've got some built-in safety things there. You can't share your phone number, you can't type in a number, can't share your address. You can block people, you can report people, and kids learn really early on that you can do this, sometimes by accident, when they report each other and then they're banned from the game for a week. But um, these are strategies that we need to be using in the social media world as well and helping our older youth realize that these you can report, you can use NetSafe, you can... You know, you, you can stand up, you can stand up, you yep. can say stop, block. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah. But I mean, I, we're not trivializing this either. Um, I'm a little bit concerned when I sometimes go to schools and they're talking about banning cell phones. And I can totally see why they want to do it. I mean, they, they say, oh, well, you know, it's a distraction. It's, you know, allows the bullying to happen. But what they're doing, though, is banning it at school. They're not banning it totally. So what's happening is that at home, it comes in. And when they're finally let out, they're on their devices straight away. So, you know, it's, it's, it's pushing the problem out. Mm. That's the problem. And so what should be in a, hopefully through doing it in school and engaging, and I don't say this is, needs to be the school's responsibility. It's trying to get people to end to help with this boat but it's actually scaffolding in a safe environment because kids learn best when they're engaging in it. And you can't do cyber safety without the devices. Doesn't make sense. And it's about partnership, parents, yeah. teachers, and young people. Like, I think it's quite ironic that we're talking about young people plugged in and online, and here are we, you know, two older mums, you know, telling what we think about it. I mean, what we really need to be doing is getting youth voice and youth involved in this. There's a fabulous program called Digital Waitaha. They're a not-for-profit um, in the um, Waitaha region. And they're training digital ambassadors in schools, young people to work with other young people to think about the issues that you're facing in school and deal with them and talk about them. And I think we definitely need more of that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, that's really true. I mean, I think a lot of it's about this this balance between scaffolding skills and helping them engage and learning how to do it. And I think it needs to be their holistic approach, you know, banning and stopping, uh, you know, relying on stopgap measures like a, you know, for example, filters is not going to work because eventually they'll work their way around it. Or they're at someone else's house that doesn't have the filters or they're on their devices that doesn't have filters. So I think, these things help scaffold you, but they shouldn't be where you stop as well. So let's tell us a bit about what we can do. Like we've been a bit, we haven't really been doom and gloom, but we need to talk about digital capabilities and, you know, how we can go forward. And we only have 15 minutes left. Oh, okay. So run into it. So <laughs> I, I think we're starting to explore the how do we engage, and especially in schools. So one of the things that have come out um, the beginning of 2020 is the digital um, technologies has been, learning areas have been redeveloped and, and integrated more into schools. And one of the things that have been changing is that kids from year one are learning about digital technologies. And not just learning how to use technology, but learning how to code. So they're starting to unpack, like I said, the, the thing that comes underneath the bonnet. 
You know, how, what is an algorithm? How does it work? What does it do? What's the influence? And so they're learning how computers work because of that. But what we also need to do is it's not just teaching them how to use technology and program. It needs to be wider. It needs to be looking at things like digital citizenship, which is a lot harder to teach, though. Because that's all about attitudes and behaviours. You know, Hartley, we were talking about the bad behaviour online. We're needing to think critically, for example. Mm. But, I mean, as access improves, and while inequality is still an issue, the cell phone has increased access, everyone's going to be able to access information. We're all going to be consumers. What's going to set young people apart is being creators and producers of information. And I think that's something where the curriculum really needs to needs to be able to work. Yeah. NetSafe were, in their research um, showed that 80% of kids use YouTube daily, but I can't remember, like 5% will create and upload a video on YouTube. So that's the area, that's the positive contribution that we need to be focusing on. And I, I think that's exactly it. It's about the letting the kids set them up now to be those creators of you know, the next generation of technology so it's not consuming them. They, you know, they create the better version of Twitter. You, know, you think about AI coming out and, and the influence on that, and it's actually quite scary when you think about you know, what is that life going to be for them when, you know, when it's really hard to sort of work out what's real and fake. Yes, well, it's hard enough anyway with print media, let alone online media. You know, we've got misinformation, disinformation, you know, campaigns that are really willfully all about spreading um, the new truth, as it was. <laughs> so, I mean, I think one of the things we think are really important, I mean, is, is that whole thing around being able to distinguish and understand what we are reading and seeing and doing really critically. Mm. I mean, you mentioned AI. So, mm. I mean, has, every, has anyone here heard of the new AI chat GPT? I mean, people have heard, yeah? Has anyone used it? Oh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, <laughs> yep, that's really good. So chat GPT is what they call, I'll have to read this out because I never actually get it right, a natural language modeling program. So the idea of um, chat GPT is a chatbot, okay? So what is done, it's, it's trained on data, and it's just a really sophisticated um, language model. So you can prompt it and it will give you some really good, well-crafted information. Mm. Not necessarily correct, though. Mm. <laughs> Reminds me a bit of the early 2000s when the Matrix came out, when we had the Oracle. I remember talking to a student and I said, so how do you search for information online? And they very calmly said, I ask the Google. <laughs> so if the Google was authoritative at the time, I hate to think about what ChatGPT is. Yeah, and that's a scary thing is when we start to engage with things like ChatGPT and we need to let, you know, we need to think about what those implications are, especially if on the surface it looks so convincing, you know, so really interesting. And at UC, we're starting to grapple with, you know, the implications of ChatGPT in terms of creating assignments and, you know, you can create an assignment pretty quick, you know, instantly that looks pretty good. I mean, having said that, I mean, I have looked at some of this stuff. It's, it's pretty good. It's glossy on the surface, not a lot of substance underneath, but it's interesting how it's changing our interaction. And in fact, um, I had a giggle the other day on Twitter. Someone had, um, that I follow wrote that um, they finally found their first assignment that was written by an AI. And they said, oh, it was for an um, undergrad assignment on positionality. And in this assignment was a statement, I'll read it because I'm not sure if I'm going to get it quite right. So it says, 
Where is it? <laughs> Thank you. Statement. I don't have a personal history, identity or culture in the traditional sense because I'm an official artificial intelligence language model. Hmm. Yeah, that student doesn't even bother to read the AI essay, does they? <laughs> That's like worst case scenario. Yeah. But I mean, I think what's really interesting is it's not all that bad. Like, we have to admit, we're meant to be doing some micro-credential and we wrote it um, in lots of very academic jargon and our learning designer managed to make it sound a lot better by sticking it into CAT-GPT and saying, mate, put this in plain English. So if academics can have their, you know, their writing made more understandable for a lay audience, well, 10-year-olds can stick their writing in and say, make this more academic. Yeah. Oh, the opportunities are endless. Yeah. I did try to get ChatGPT to do this um, presentation, this talk. <laughs> it didn't work very well. <laughs> so that sure. was odious. But, I mean, I think there are implications. There are things we can use for kids for, you know, especially the um, writing essays, to get them started. I use it a lot to improve my writing. So what does it mean when we start to identify, you know, especially I was thinking about a messy um, article that came out where, you know, they were saying that, you know, they had identified um, students that had used ChatGPT to write their assignments and they were going to give amnesty for anyone that came forward. It makes me really uncomfortable because... You know, what are they looking for in that space, especially when these Turnitin, which is what they use to identify the AI writing, is not 100% correct. You know, so what are they picking up? And, and, you know, if they used it to support their writing, is that actually cheating? It's a whole new conversation about what's real or not. I mean, we all probably use word spell checker and Grammarly, and I think that's quite prevalent in schools if you're a Google Classroom. Mm. And also, what's your, what's your intellectual contribution? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think there's a lot of other things that we need to still talk about and, and not time for this in our presentation. But, you know, there's things like data sovereignty, privacy. There is issues around the biases of that information and, and what information has been sped out to these students and the biases that they're further reinforcing because they're using this information. You know, so there's, there's a lot of ethical aspects and policy level that we need to talk about. And I know that there's a lot of scientists in the AI community that are very nervous about this. We certainly don't have to the degree of, you know, that conscious thoughts that AI could have, but we are getting closer and it really is impacting our kids' lives. And I think what it I think what it says now is that we need to think about digital literacies as a plural, digital yep. literacies for the future. What are AI literacies? I mean, I don't think this is getting easier. I don't think the world's getting more, less complex. Technology's not going away. I mean, what do you think about the future, Catherine? I'm like, no, we're heading into the wrap-up stage, yep. you know? Worried, excited? It's a little bit terrifying. I mean, I don't think we've given you any <laughs> advice here or any <laughs> suggestions. We've just really talked about some of the things that we're seeing. And... I mean, because we don't know. We don't know what the future is going to be like. But I do have hope. If we start now with our kids and set them up properly, we teach them what technology is and what it can do and what it can't do, what we should use it for and what we shouldn't use it for, that's a starting point. You? Yep, I agree. I mean, our household, if I think about our title, our household is definitely plugged in and logged on most of the time. Um, it's, but it's part of our identity, and I think that's the thing we need to do. You know, we need to see 
the virtual as a very real and legitimate space for our young people as well as the physical. So maybe what we should be saying at the dinner table is how was your day at school? How was your day online? What did you watch? What did you do? <laughs> Who knows? But that's probably a great way to end because we really want to leave it open to the audience just to raise any questions, comments or thoughts that yep. you might have. So thank you for your time and for listening to us. Do you think that maybe um, students these days are not as literate they don't have as many numeracy skills, but they don't need those because with technology and the amount of things that technology can do, you don't quite need to be as adept as you were. Good question. I mean, I think the, the need to hold and retain information is different. So, I mean, you're talking about Dr. Google, you know, we've got a lot of information that we, you know, we expect our kids to have. And um, one thing we didn't talk about was where they're consuming information as well. So you know, doing a survey of students with, um, you know, topical things that are happening, they might not know about it because they're not consuming the same sources of information we are. They don't use the news anymore. You know, they have alternative sources. Um, but I also think, I, I'm not saying that digital technology is going to replace the basics. We still need to build that. And I, I do talk to a lot of student uh, teachers about how overcrowded the curriculum is and how do we actually start teaching all the extra stuff because of technology when we've still got the bread and butter to come in? And I think that the um, approach is about how do we leverage technology to make it more engaging? And that's why I like digital technologies. I think about the teaching and the learning that I did when I was young. It was boring. You know, we read a textbook. We answered the questions in the textbook. I hope schooling is a lot more interesting than that because of technology. But I certainly don't think we, you know, it's going to replace things, but I think it's changing what we're valuing. Do you want to say anything? I'll just say that we're not teachers, so um, this could be controversial among some of our teacher colleagues, but I think it, it's the changing. I mean, and I do think we have to validate and uphold the skills that our young people have, and I don't think we're doing that enough. I think if we had more youth voice, our youth could be saying, here is what I'm good at, here is how I'm mm. using things. There is no doubt that jobs in the future are different. I mean, who would have ever thought that my teenager's first uni job would be a contact tracer? Didn't exist beforehand, <laughs> you know, entirely online, doing something that, you know, just wasn't there. So I think that's the thing. We need to be adaptable. And we need to be looking at many different futures because it is uncertain. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the comments I've heard is that technology is not necessarily enhancing critical thinking. So from an educational perspective, what's, what's your view? Is, is critical thinking uh, improving or remaining as it's always been? Thinking critically is not about using technology. There are critical thinking skills that young people, that we all need. We need as adults and we need to be teaching our young children. We've got to get them to question, you know, even in the digital space, whose voices are there, whose voices aren't. Everything you read is a perspective. And so I think it's a constant conversation and unpacking. And I've got my lovely colleague here sitting in the front row, Jane, who is a social science chief, um, educator. And we've been grappling with digital citizenship and that curriculum here and how, you know, and how critical thinking just needs to be part of things. I think one of the things is that digital technology is not a subject that should be taught in isolation. That's us. We're not part of the curriculum. English critical thinking and digital technology, social sciences, science, it comes in everywhere, and we need to be thinking about that, you know, across the whole curriculum. But, I mean, I do worry that we're just accepting at face value what's there, and if, if that's what's going to happen, AI can be a real risk because... 
I mean, I was just listening to a, um, a Māori colleague on a webinar recently who was saying, ChatGPT is speaking pretty good te reo, but when you ask it for a te reo, um, you know, create a Māori creation story, it makes it up. It's mm. certainly not right. And we need to be able to know. We can't just trust the, trust the Google. We need to be able to assess and know what's true mm. and what isn't. Yeah. I mean, especially when AI can hallucinate. That's the making up. But it's, it's, I think we have to teach critical thinking even more because of it, because of those, you know, it becomes harder to identify that fake and real. And I think um, by possibly what you're saying around the integration of the technology gives us the opportunity in every aspect of talking about, you know, not just using technology, it's lifting the lid and saying, okay, we're using in the social sciences class, but, you know, what does that mean we Google? What is the skills that we're looking at? Is that information we're getting correct? Is it right? You know, what is it trying to tell us? What is it trying to push? What dominant voice is it trying to push? So, yeah, tricky. It, it doesn't mean that reading and writing and numeracy isn't important mm -hmm. but because you, you can't be critical about what you read if you don't understand the maths. Yeah. Um, if, if you're getting statistical stuff thrown at you and you don't know what it means, yeah. then you can't be critical about it. Yeah. So yeah. It, that's the big challenge for educators. It's this huge range of literacies that need to be explored and taught and developed and this consciousness that, that needs to happen. So I don't have a solution, <laughs> but it, it is the educational challenge, I think, of the moment. Yeah, complicated. Uh, um, I, to answer the critical thinking question, I've seen it with my the last three years of my youngest child at primary school. He went to a new school, new staff, modern learning environments. In his last three years at school, it was entirely inquiry learning, inquiry-based learning. So he picked what he wanted for the whole year and everything was around that project and it gave him such good critical thinking skills that he went into high school with them. And I, I'm constantly surprised with things he's thinking, much deeper things he's thinking about. So I, th I think we're doing it really, it can be done really, really well at primary school, mm. which I was pretty surprised by, <laughs> you know. And then I think that will flow on. I think we'll have critical thinkers coming through. Yeah, and integration, I think, is, is a key there. So we mentioned about we don't think um, IT can be necessarily taught by itself because it, it does go across. So I think you can still have your IT classes, your digital technology classes, but it needs to flow across as well. So integrated curriculum where you're looking at the inquiry base, it becomes tricky and harder for, for teachers a lot of the time to try and align this curriculum. But I, I, do, I do have hope that, you know, with the curriculum refresh that some of you might be aware of is there is hopefully a um, looking at how do we integrate because that is the way that we can cement some of those foundational information but also build those critical thinking. What I've noticed is that back in the day, I would sit with my family or my friends and like if we had a question, we would discuss things for ages. Nowadays, you just sit down and you just ask Google, as you said before. Do you have any research or experience how it changed things in terms of interpersonal communication and skills and all that kind of stuff? It could change things, but one of the values I think we really need to have is we need to figure out why we really want to have the, um, you know, the interpersonal stuff. We've got a rule about no cell phones at the dinner table, 
we really want to have a space in our family to do that. We've had to all agree to do it. You can't have one rule for the kids and another one for the parents. Mm. Um, so, but I mean, the other thing is, is that young people crowdsource everything. So instead of going to go and look it up or ask someone for their advice, you know, if you've got a problem, you know, what do you do? You just immediately, you know, put it out there and get someone to come up with it. Does anyone know of this? You know, I often see that on Twitter, help, I need a X. And it's amazing how people do rally around and come forward. And as a crowdsourcing thing, build together some of those ideas in social media places. And we don't see it. So it's, I think there's a different level of conversation that can happen. Um, but I also think... We need to think about what our values are as adults, and I think we need to transfer, we need to do real active thinking as teachers in a classroom. When is a cell phone good? When is it not good? Put it in your bag, I don't want to see it. But there are times when this digital is valuable and times when it isn't. 